Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Hey, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. We're currently in a study in which we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's how we like to study the Bible here at Whitefields. For the most part, that's what we do. We go through books of the Bible. We've been in a series for the last several weeks called Grace and Truth, in which we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've now come up to one of the greatest chapters, actually, in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. Excited to study this with you, but as you're opening up there in your Bibles, in your Bible apps, if you need a Bible, by the way, we have some in some of the chairs. There's little racks uh, underneath them if you're looking for a Bible so you can follow along. Well, let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We ask that this uh, morning, Lord, you would teach us about your love. Help us to know it. Help us to understand it. Help us to appreciate it more. But also, Lord, we pray that all the more you would spread your love abroad in our hearts by your spirit, Lord, that it might overflow out of us and touch other people's lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in January of 2002, I quit my job and I sold my car and I bought a one-way ticket to Germany. And from Germany, I got another one-way ticket on a train to Hungary. And I was going there to Hungary to work with a church, and my monthly salary was going to be $200 a month, uh, which was minimum wage in Hungary at that time. Now, I grew up in Colorado. I love the mountains. I love snowboarding. And the, right before I moved to Hungary, I had just landed my, what I thought was my dream job, right? So it was working for a snowboard company, uh, working on the snow up at the resorts, and this is what I was doing. And I'd, I'd been wanting to get into this job, and I finally got it. I finally got accepted. It paid really well. I was really excited. This is what I had been wanting and working for. <coughs> I even went out, and I'm like, with all this money, I'm going to buy a car. So I was like looking at buying a sports car and all these things. And then something happened where I said, you know what? I quit the job. I didn't buy the car. Um, and this job that I wanted so bad, I quit. And I instead, I moved to Hungary, which if you've ever been to Hungary, you know, it's kind of like the anti-Colorado. It's the opposite of Colorado, right? Like, uh, it's very flat. It's like the flattest part of Europe. Uh, there aren't any big mountains. Uh, and the part of Hungary I moved to, by the way, is actually the flattest part of the country. Like, even people in Hungary are like, wow, that part's really flat, right? Like, so I gave up my dream job in order to make $200 a month, which was enough to pay my rent and eat one meal a day. That's, that's right, just one meal a day, actually, was how much it was uh, enough money for. And the reason I did this, by the way, is because I had this conviction. There was something inside of me that wanted to do something with my life that really mattered, that actually mattered, right? Because snowboarding was fun. It was, but it was kind of all about me. I was excited about the prospect of doing something that would be truly significant, something that would really make a difference and an impact on the world. Now, first year I lived in Hungary, I lost a lot of weight because I was only eating one meal a day, and sometimes I would run out of money, and then I would not eat because I didn't have a credit card. And I'm kind of glad I didn't have a credit card because I probably would have used it, right? And, and then I would have been in debt. But So I just didn't have, I had the cash, and then when I ran out of money, I just couldn't do any more things, which was like included eating. So even though I was broke, and even though I was hungry, 
I still wanted to stay. You see, I had originally gone there to stay eight months, but at the end of that time, or as that time was coming up, I said, you know what? I'm going to stay here. I'm just going to keep being hungry and keep being poor because what I was doing there, actually, I felt that it was making a difference. It was truly significant. It actually mattered. This past week, I, I was listening to the news, and they were talking about how in this past year and a half, as this pandemic's been going on, there's been this phenomena taking place, which is called, they call it the career awakening, the great career awakening, in which American workers are in mass, right, reconsidering their jobs and their careers and their lives and what they really want out of their lives. And the key factor in this, they said, is significance. The pandemic has caused people to say, well, I guess I could die at one point, and I guess if I'm going to die someday, well, then I want to spend the rest of my life until I die doing something that actually matters. And so they're reconsidering their jobs and their lives altogether. Well, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have a passage which speaks to that issue directly, that issue of significance, doing something with your life that really matters. You know, what is it that makes for a life that really matters, a truly significant, meaningful life? How can you be sure that your actions will really have a lasting impact? What Paul the Apostle is going to show us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that in order for your actions and your life to have lasting significance, they must be characterized by love. And the only way to know true love is through Jesus Christ, who embodied it perfectly. So we're going to take that sentence, and that'll be our guide and our outline for studying this passage today. Let's look at that first part of that sentence. In order for your actions and life to have lasting significance, Paul says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is part of a bigger section that goes from chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, in which Paul is talking about the value and the use of spiritual gifts. Now, the Corinthian Christians were very interested in spiritual gifts. They were very enamored with spiritual gifts, particularly with the gift of speaking in tongues. They thought that one was the best, the coolest, the, the most awesomest. And so the Corinthians were interested in this. And Paul, the apostle, in this letter he's writing to the Corinthians, he has been encouraging them that it is good for them to desire to have spiritual gifts and to operate in spiritual gifts. He told them in chapter 12, verse 1, that he didn't want them to be ignorant when it came to the topic of spiritual gifts. He wanted them to know about them and be knowledgeable about them. Furthermore, he said at the end of chapter 12, he said, it's good. I want you to desire and seek after the greater gifts, the higher gifts. But then he said this, and yet I will show you still a more excellent way. Still a more excellent way. Well, that more excellent way is what Paul's going to talk about here in chapter 13. And that more excellent way is the way of love. The way of love. You see, it was good that the Corinthians were interested in spiritual gifts. But what Paul wants to show them is that there's actually something bigger, something better, something more important than having spiritual gifts, than using spiritual gifts, and that is walking in love. So listen, the Corinthians were pursuing spiritual gifts, but the deal is that they lacked something. And what they lacked, and we see that throughout this letter, what they lacked was love for each other and concern for other people. In their pursuit of the spiritual gifts, in their pursuit of knowing more stuff about God, 
there was this attitude of rivalry and elitism that had developed in their church. And some people were looking down on other people, right? This elitist idea, looking down on other people, puffed up with pride because they had a certain spiritual gift that other people didn't have, or because they knew more stuff about the Bible than other people knew. So what Paul wants to communicate to them and to us here in this chapter is this. Look, as good as spiritual gifts are, as good as it is to know stuff about God and to know the Bible well, listen, if you don't have love, then you've missed the point completely. You're just totally missing it. Now, in his introduction to this letter, Paul had praised the Corinthians for two things. First of all, he praised them that they abounded in spiritual gifts. The second thing he praised them about was that they abounded in eloquence and knowledge when it came to the topic of God and theology and the Bible. But here, what he, what he wants to tell them is that without love, none of those things really matter at the end of the day. You see, this chapter, in a way, it's really the pinnacle of the entire letter. Right? This is the high point. Everything in this letter has been building up to what Paul's going to tell us here in this letter. And that's this. that Throughout this letter, we've been seeing that in Christ, we have a higher calling than just living to serve ourselves. We have a higher calling. We're called to a higher way, the more excellent way, the way of Jesus, the way of love. What does it look like to practically walk in the footsteps of Jesus and love the way that Jesus loved Jesus, who gave his life in love for us? That's what Paul's going to be talking about. So he says here in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Remember, the Corinthians were particularly enamored with the gift of speaking in tongues. And so Paul addresses that first. He says, look, even if you can speak in tongues, but if you don't love other people, then you're just making noise. And frankly, you're being obnoxious, right? Because look, imagine if Mike was up here and the only thing he had was a cymbal. And just for 20 minutes, right, he just banged on that cymbal and sang those songs. You'd be like, this is obnoxious. Well, that's kind of what Paul's saying. Just noise without music, right? Just making noise. If you don't have love, it's obnoxious. Now that word tongues, when it talks about the gift of tongues or speaking in the tongues. Now remember, the word tongues refers to languages, so the gift of speaking in tongues, remember in context here of what Paul's talking about, he's talking about the spiritual gifts. And so he starts by talking about the gift of tongues. Now that gift of speaking in tongues, we're going to talk about it more when we get into chapter 14, which we'll get into a little bit next week. But listen, the gift of tongues, what we see throughout chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, is that the gift of speaking in tongues is the ability to speak in a language which even you yourself do not understand. Now, so it's the ability to pray to God in the Spirit in a way that's not constrained by the limitations of your own linguistic abilities. Now, one of the questions people often ask, and that's why I bring up this verse, is they sometimes ask, you know, when we talk about speaking in tongues, now, does that mean that they're speaking in known languages, right? Like Korean or Japanese or, I don't know, whatever other languages are out there, French, German, something like that? Or... Uh, is this something completely different than known human language? Well, what Paul seems to be saying here, he says the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, right? It seems that he's saying it can be both, right? In some cases, it can be the tongues of men, right? Just like on the day of Pentecost, where the uh, people received the Spirit, they began speaking in tongues, and people understood them in their own languages, the languages of the Medes and Persians and Arabs, etc. But then there also seems to be a thing in the Bible that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where he talks about how it's possible to pray by the Spirit, 
with groanings that cannot be understood in human languages. So it seems that Paul's saying here, tongues of men, tongues of angels, it can be both when it comes to this topic of speaking in tongues. Now, verse two, he says, if I have all prophetic powers, you see, Paul's going through the gifts that he talked about in chapter 12. Even if you have the gift of this, even if you have the gift of prophecy, even if you understand all mysteries and knowledge, he says, even if you have all faith and you can move mountains, but you don't have love, he says, I am nothing. The true measure of spirituality, the true measure of spiritual maturity is not that you have spiritual gifts, not that you, you're gifted in some way, or that you know more things about the Bible than other people know. No, that doesn't make you mature. That doesn't make you truly spiritual. No, the true measure of spirituality is whether you have a heart of love for other people. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, is love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. I like what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He said, the purpose of my instruction, this is the goal, is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and genuine faith. And then in the final chapter of this letter, you know what Paul's going to do? He's going to bring it all around. He said, all this stuff I told you, here's what it all comes down to. Let all that you do be done in love. Just hang on a second here. So, okay, we're supposed to be loving, supposed to do stuff from love. But what does that actually mean, right? Does that mean just like be nice to people? Is that what it all comes down to? Paul's basically saying, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you can do. Just be nice to people, okay? Is that what he's saying? That's not what he's saying. It's something much more deep, much more profound than that. And to understand what he's talking about, we need to define what is love. What, what does Paul mean when he says love? What is he talking about? What does it mean to love somebody? Does it just mean to be, to be polite to them, to be nice? Is love a feeling that you have that kind of comes and goes uh, as it wishes, right? Depending on the way that other people treat you, you might feel love for them when they're nice to you and you don't feel love for them when they're not. Well, we can get some understanding about what this love is that Paul's talking about here just by looking at the ancient Greek word that is translated love in this text. Now, the ancient Greeks had four different words that we can translate as love. Now, in English, we only have one word, and we use that word for lots of different things, right? Like, we, we use that one word to describe a lot of different relationships. So, you love your dog, and you love pizza, and you love your spouse, and you love the mountains, but even though you use that one word to describe all of those feelings, all of those relationships, those are not the same thing, right? The love that you have for your spouse is not the same love that you have for pizza. But we don't have any other words, right? This is all we've got. So we're using it for everything. But in Greek, the Greeks, they have four different words. And each of those words describes a different type of love, a different kind of love. And that's helpful. It's important to understand what these four types of love are. And it's important to understand why Paul uses the word agape in this case. But you know why else it's important? It's important because in our day and age, there's so much confusion in our culture over what the word love means and what love is. You know, we have this saying, you've probably heard it before, right? People go around saying, love is love. I just understand, if you would have said that to an ancient Greek person, you said, hey, bro, love is love, he would have been like, what are you talking about? What kind of love are you talking about? There's different kinds of love, right? 
Love might be love, but it depends what kind of love you're talking about because there are different types of love that pertain to different types of relationships. So we have to define what kind of love we're talking about. And so let me show you the four Greek words for love. The first one is the word eros. Now this is a word from which we get our word erotic, right? So this is speaking of physical, sensual love. Uh, the next kind of word is Storge, right? This speaks of love within a family, the kind of love that exists between a parent and a child or between a, a brother and a sister. So eros is a very different kind of love than storge. Now, in English, we, both, we call them both love, right? But in, the Greeks said, no, no, those things are two totally different things. Eros doesn't belong in a family relationship in the way that storge does, right? And so we have to differentiate between which types of love belong in which types of relationship. So the next word is phileo. Now, we sometimes think about this like Philadelphia, right? The brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. Understand that phileo really refers to uh, friendship, deep friendship. So when we talk about brotherly love, we're not talking about the kind of love that exists between biological brothers. That would be storge. What we're talking about is when we call somebody our, our brother, we have a brotherhood or a fellowship, right? It's a partnership and a friendship. It's, it's a deep friendship that's described by that word. And then we have the fourth word, which is the word agape. Now, this is the word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians. And the word agape speaks of the highest form, the purest, most selfless form of love that exists. Agape love is love that is unchanging. It is self-giving. It gives without demanding or expecting anything in return. Agape love is love that loves even when it is not reciprocated even when it's rejected in some cases. Agape love loves because it wants to. It doesn't love in order to receive, right? It is sacrificial. It is a giving kind of love that is characterized by self-denial for the sake of the other. You know, and here's what's interesting. Agape love is the kind of love which God has for us, and we are called to respond to God's love by loving other people with agape love. You know, when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, love your neighbor as yourself, you know the word he used there? was the word agape. Love your neighbor with the same agape love that you have received from God. But here's what I think is really interesting. Some people say, well, agape love. So agape love is the love of God. Well, not, not exactly. Let me explain. Did you know that the word agape is used in the Bible to describe the love that people have for darkness and the love that people have for the world instead of loving God? So in John chapter 3, Jesus says some people are perishing because they love the darkness rather than love the light. And the word he uses there is agape. They love the darkness with agape love, with all that they are in, a, in the highest form of love. Rather than being directed towards God, they have directed that agape love towards darkness and evil, towards the world rather than towards the Lord. And so the fact is that this agape love can be directed towards God. It can be directed towards other people, but it can also be directed towards things that are destructive and dark, as, as Jesus says and as John says there in 1 John. So agape love is shown in actions. This is really important to understand that, as you'll see in this passage, agape love has very little to do with emotion and feelings. Agape love has everything to do with actions 
of self-sacrifice, actions of self-denial for the sake of another person. So as we read this chapter, I just want you to understand that when we talk about love, Paul isn't just talking about being friendly. He's not just talking about being generally like nice to people. He's talking about something much more deep, much more profound than that. He's talking about acts of self-denial and sacrifice for the sake of another person. Now, look at verse 3. He says, If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. What he's telling us is, look, there are even ways in which you can sacrifice, in which you can be charitable and giving to others, and yet you do it not out of motivation to love and serve that person, but you can do it in a way that kind of it seeks to draw attention and glorify yourself. Look at me. Look how generous I am. Look how, look how much I'm sacrificing for things, right? We've all heard those things or had those thoughts. I hope somebody else sees my sacrifice, right? Uh, that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, if it's not motivated by love, look at what he says in these three verses. Without love, what does he say? You gain nothing. You accomplish nothing. And look at it in verse 2. He said, you are nothing. Say again, without love, you gain nothing. You accomplish nothing. You are nothing of significance that lasts. That's what he's saying. So that brings us back to our sentence. In order for your life to have lasting significance, your actions in your life must be characterized by love. That's why. And we're going to go down to verse 8, and we'll come back to verse 4 in a minute. Don't worry. But go down with me to verse 8. Here's why your actions must be characterized by love in order to have lasting significance. He says in verse 8, Because love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Everything you see in this room, it's it's going to be gone someday, guys. It's temporary. It's not going to last. You know, there are only a few things that exist now that will last forever. You know what they are? Well, we know that God will last forever. We know that human souls will last forever. And we know that love, love will exist for all of eternity. In, in heaven, there will be love forever. See, think about that. If, if the only things that really last are God human souls, and love, then if you want your life to have lasting significance, you need to use your time, your resources, your attention. You need to invest them in things which are going to last forever. This is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about storing up treasure in heaven. To store up treasure in heaven, it means to use your time and your resources that you have here and now in ways that will make a difference and an impact for all of eternity. You know, if you think about it, man, we spend so much time, don't we, focusing on things, taking care of things that aren't going to last forever, or in some cases, not even for very long. You know, I think one of the greatest spiritual exercises you can do, if you want to help yourself out spiritually, one of the greatest things you can do is to take a trip, take a field trip to the dump. Man, it will do wonders for your soul to take a field trip to the dump. I'm not even kidding, okay? Here's why. You go to the dump, and you know what you're going to see? You are going to see a literal man-made mountain, a true mountain made of things which people at one time in their life spent a lot of time on, spent a lot of money on, spent a lot, gave a lot of attention to. Cars, appliances, electronics, toys, you know, furniture. In many cases, these are things that people went into debt, right? They took out loans. They went into debt in order to get these things. They went to work day after day 
in order to pay for these things. Month after month, they went to their job and worked so that they could buy these things that now make up a mountain of trash. Many of the items at the dump, right? Think about it. These are things that husbands and wives got into arguments about. And where did they end up? In the trash heap. People spent hours of their lives in the store picking these things out, right? Putting all this thought into them. And just imagine, where are they now? Just in a big pile of trash down the road. How much of our lives do, you, do we invest in things which eventually are just going to end up at the dump, on, on a trash heap? And listen, friends, it is possible. It's not only possible, it is almost, I would say, common for, for us to spend our lives acquiring stuff and acquiring knowledge and acquiring talents which at the end of the day will be completely meaningless and they will have availed you nothing and they will have gotten you nowhere. But there are a few things that will last forever. Human souls will last forever. God will last forever. Love lasts forever. And there's coming a day, the Bible tells us, when everyone who has ever lived is going to stand before God and they will give an account for what they did with what God gave them. And most importantly, you'll give an account for what you did with Jesus Christ, the Savior that God provided for you. But right now, Paul says in verse 9 and 10, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. So right now, the spiritual gifts serve a purpose because we don't see God, right? We walk by faith and he has given us the gifts of the spirit to be manifestations of his spirit for our good, to help us. There are ways in which God reveals his heart to us, his will. He empowers us. He, he empowers us to work in the world, empowers us to know things about him. And he's revealed these things by the Spirit and through His Word, right? So we know things about God also through His Word. And yet, when that day comes, when you will stand before God, spiritual gifts will no longer be necessary. They will no longer be necessary. Paul explains that in verses 11 and 12. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, right? So when that day comes, you, you grow up in a way. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Because, you know, there are a lot of things that we don't understand about God. You know, last week we talked about doubt. Well, where does doubt come from? It comes from not knowing stuff about God and how God works, right? Not understanding stuff. There's a lot of things we don't understand, isn't there? Right? We don't understand why God allows certain things to happen. Don't we? That's what we wonder about. It causes us to struggle sometimes. We don't know why God allowed certain things to happen. We, here's another one. We don't understand exactly how God works. Because on the one hand, we know that God's sovereign. But on the other hand, we see that God allows people to make choices, even bad and evil choices. So how does that work, right? Like, another thing, we don't understand why God sometimes doesn't answer our prayers, and we have to admit, and that's what Paul's saying here, we see in part right now. We don't see the whole picture. We don't understand everything. There are things we know about God because God's told us those things clearly in his word, but there are a lot of things we don't know. There are a lot of things we don't understand. And yet, here's the promise, a day is coming when we will see God face to face, when you will know him up close and personally, and a lot of things that are unclear to you right now will become very clear in the light of his glorious face, right? 
There are a lot of things which are fuzzy right now that will become clear at that point. So I want to encourage you, don't let the things that are unclear to you right now cause you to stop pursuing God because we have this promise that even though now we only see dimly as in a mirror darkly, there's coming a day when we will know as we are known. We will see face to face. You know, there are a lot of reasons why heaven will be great. I'm sure you can think of some, right? We'll be reunited with those who have gone before us in the faith. There will be no more injustice or pain or suffering anymore. But you know the thing that will make heaven the most heavenly is the fact that God will be there, right? That that is actually what will make it most heavenly, that you will experience the unhindered, unrestricted presence of God. That is what will make heaven heaven. You know, it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle, right, he's the one who had the vision that's described there in Revelation, it's written down. John the Apostle, he says in Revelation that in heaven, the streets will be paved with gold and the gates will be made of pearl. Now, you could look at that and you could say, wow, that'll be beautiful. So opulent, right? So much riches in heaven. But that's, friends, that's not the point. You know what the point is? That in heaven, there will be a great reversal of values, That in heaven, the gold that we treasure so much here on earth, it will be like asphalt. You don't see people going out, being like, looking at that parking lot, being, look at all this asphalt. Oh, my gosh, right? Like, that's what it's going to be like in heaven. We're not going to be like, look at all the gold. We're going to be like, walking on it because we'll have other values. Do you get my point? Right now, uh, we say, wow, streets of gold. But in heaven, the point is this. Gold in heaven is like asphalt, Right? The things that we consider so valuable in this world, in heaven, those things, a lot of them aren't going to matter. Think about it, the gold, the wealth, the money that, that nations go to war over, that people fight over or spend their whole life working for and pursuing. In heaven, it will be as worthless as asphalt because in heaven, there will be a great reversal of values. In heaven, the true value will be the souls for which Jesus gave his blood. In heaven, the true value will be the one who sits on the throne. He will be the one who rivets our gaze and absorbs our thoughts and captures our affections and enraptures our hearts. The true value in heaven will be the love, which is the currency of heaven, right? The love for which Jesus gave his life for you and which you get to enjoy back and forth with him and with others forever. That's why Paul says in verse 13, so now... Faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The three supreme virtues, faith, hope, and love, these are the three most important elements to the Christian life. Without faith, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. By faith, we believe God, and it's credited to us as righteousness. We're justified by faith. It's by faith that we receive the salvation which Jesus earned for us. And now we walk with God by faith, not by sight. When it comes to hope, hope is the confident expectation that God will indeed keep his promises. And so we live in hope because of what Jesus did for us and what the Bible says about us. And yet, when we see Jesus face to face, you won't need hope. Your hope will be, will be realized. You won't need faith because you'll see face to face. But love will go on forever. Love will never end. And that's why we finish our sentence in this way. In order for your actions in your life to have lasting significance, they must be characterized by love. And the only way to know true love is through Jesus Christ, who embodied it perfectly. 
Now come with me back to chapter 13, verse 4. Come with me back to verse 4 and this description of what true love is. First, Paul tells us two things that love is. Love is patient and love is kind. You know that patience is one of the most frequently used descriptions of God in the Bible. God is patient. That's part of his mercy towards us is that he is patient. And he's kind. It says in Romans chapter 2 that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance because we see the kind of God he is. It makes us want to repent. And then going on, Paul now tells us eight things which love is not. So eight things which love is not. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And then finally, Paul tells us four more things that love does. Here's what love does. It bears all things. It believes all things. Love hopes all things and endures all things. Love, in other words, is quick to give people the benefit of the doubt. Love is interested in, uh, in serving others, in giving of itself, rather than being served and asserting itself. So I want you to do a little exercise with me now, okay? Here's the exercise. Look down at your Bibles, verses 4 through 7, and I want you to go through that passage, and everywhere where you see the word love, I want you to insert your own name, okay? And then kind of read it back to yourself silently, right? Like read it back to yourself with your name in that place, right? Go for it. Just do it right now. As for me, right? I'll do it. It would sound like this if it was me. Nick is patient. Nick is kind. Nick is not envious and does not boast. Nick is not arrogant or rude. Nick does not insist on his own way. Nick is not irritable. Nick is not resentful, and so on. Now, let me ask you, how does that make you feel when you read that passage with your name in there? Listen, I think if you have any degree of honesty, you're going to say, well, honestly, uh, it feels like I'm a phony, right? It feels like that that's not actually true. Like, I'm reading that, and I'm like, you know what? If I'm really honest, uh, that's not true. I'm not uh, always patient. I am sometimes very rude. I, I do insist on my own way quite often. Uh, way too often, I am irritable. Sometimes I'm resentful. So when I put my name in there and kind of test myself against how I'm doing, you know what it does? It, it reveals to me how much I've fallen short. It reveals to me that I have not been the person that I ought to be. I've fallen short. I've messed up in, in, in my relationships and in the way that I am. But then let's do another exercise. Here's the other exercise. Now look back down at verses 4 through 7. And this time, instead of inserting the word or, or your own name, wherever you see the word love, I want you to insert Jesus' name. And then read it through and see how that reads, right? So you're going to say this instead. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice in evil but rejoices in the truth. Now listen, when you read that, let me ask you, how does that make you feel? It feels a lot more true on the one hand, right? Doesn't it? But you know what else? When you read it with your own name, right, it makes you feel kind of terrible because you re you're reminded, you're brought face to face with the fact that you have fallen short. But when you read it with Jesus' name, it causes you to, to well up with thankfulness and praise and appreciation for who he is and how he has loved you. 
And friends, this is the essence of what it really means to understand the gospel. Do you get it? The essence of really understanding the gospel is when you come to the realization that you have sinned and fallen short, but that Jesus came and he succeeded in all of the ways that you have failed. That's really good news. Think about it like this. When you read in the Bible and you read about how Jesus healed the lepers, or Jesus healed those who were blind and lame, or when you read that Jesus fed the multitudes and welcomed the children, and that Jesus showed mercy and grace to the woman who was caught in adultery, what you begin to understand when you're brought face to face with your own shortcomings, what, what you begin to understand is that the things that Jesus did for those people at that time, yes, he did them for them, but you know what else? All of those things are pictures of what Jesus has come to do for you and who you are. You see, when you come face to face with your own shortcomings, you begin to realize that when Jesus healed the lepers, right, that I am a person just like those lepers. I'm infected by something, right? I'm infected by sin. And that infection, right, that disease of sin is causing my life to fall apart like a leper would fall apart. Jesus came, though, and he touched me, and he healed me. In the spite of my uncleanness, he reached out and made me clean and healed my life. I am a man born blind, but Jesus came and opened my eyes. I am that woman caught in adultery, right? Caught in sin and rightfully deserving to be judged, and yet Jesus intervened on my behalf to save me and to show me mercy and grace. I am the poor man, the hungry person, the one to whom Jesus came as the bread of life that I need to sustain me. You see, your failures and your shortcomings, they aren't things that you should hide from. They aren't things that you should hide from. Rather, your failures and your shortcomings, you know what they do? They serve to highlight all the more just how much God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so you can glory in them, not that you encourage them, but you say, I don't hide from these things, the ways that I've fallen short, but rather I see that because of these things, Jesus came and look how great he is. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world, God so loved you that he gave, right? That's the essence of agape love, giving. The father gave the son, the son gave his life. The Bible says that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only did Jesus live a holy life and die a sacrificial death, but he also rose from the grave, defeating death. He ascended to heaven from whence he will come again to take us to be with him forever. And the message of the gospel is that if you will admit that you have fallen short and you will confess your sins and you put your trust in what Jesus accomplished for you, then you will be forgiven redeemed, sealed, and transformed. And when that day comes, you will be with him forever. And just one last thing. The other thing the Bible tells us is this. Not only has God showed his great love for you in Jesus, but also says that God has poured out his love in our hearts by his Holy Spirit that he gave us. So in other words, not only are we recipients of this great love, Now we are also ambassadors of this love to the world. We get to show people that love of what God is like. We get to show people the love that we have received from him, which has been shed abroad, poured out in our hearts. And we get to let that love overflow from us and spill out onto others. 
Friends, in order for your actions and your life to have lasting significance, they must be characterized by love. And the only way to know true love is through Jesus Christ who embodied it perfectly. Please stand with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.